WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Why don't you come? That was Nathaniel Mayer and The Village of Love, a single on Fortune Records from Detroit from the early 60s. Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Writers. This is Frank Uly sitting in for T. Hetzel with a special uh, interview today with Michael Hurt, the co-author with Billy Miller of the new Kicks Books publication, Mind Over Matter, The Myths and Mysteries of Detroit's Fortune Records. came out in 2020 and is currently riding the charts, featured uh, recently in The New Yorker in a profile on the publisher, Miriam Lena. And Michael is going to give us the lowdown on how the book evolved and the Fortune Records story, which is an interesting and kind of sad tale as the label started out in the late 40s, went on to have some big hits in the 50s and early 60s, and then kind of petered out as the owners just kind of kept it going in a strange kind of ghostly fashion for a few years afterwards, but never really uh, connecting up with the world of like CDs and things. So the music is very hard to hear nowadays and out of print. Anyway, welcome Michael Hurt. Glad to be here, Frank. Thanks for having me. So why don't you give us some background on how you got started in writing and how you hooked up with Norton Records and Billy Miller and publisher Miriam Lina. It's funny, the story kind of goes back to Billy and Miriam of Norton Records and Kicks Books um, and of course Kicks Magazine originally. I remember the first time I ever saw Kicks magazine was at Wax Tracks Records in Chicago, and I was about 19 years old. And the Rivieras were on the cover, and they were from my hometown, South Bend, Indiana, and so they were cool. heroes to me. And uh, it just kind of screamed at me from the magazine rack, you know, the Rivieras are on. What is this magazine? And, and you know, I opened Kicks and just thought, like, oh, my life is laid out. You know, like, <laughs> people are like me. You know, they they're into all this weird stuff. Of course, a lot of it at the time I didn't know about. It back then you know before the internet you really it was such an underground network that you'd get into you know find out about music you know and and cool records on sort of underground records and, and also other things you know movies books you know restaurants would occasionally be talked about you know <laughs> diners yeah. but um so i think as far as you know i always wanted to i always had like enjoyed writing and let me rephrase that i always enjoyed writing and i always pictured my myself becoming a writer and i always wanted to do something with music history but as a teenager thinking about this stuff i didn't really know how i would do it you know i remember looking at like a midnighters lp on charlie that had this really cool design you know mm -hmm. uh 
what you get when the getting gets good, you know, and, and turning it over and reading those, reading the liner notes and thinking, you know, that, that moment always kind of stands out to me of, wow, I wonder how I could be like, get into this position where, you know, you get to write about this stuff and you even get to design an album cover that looks like this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so to a certain extent, I think that when I first, uh, when I first found kicks, it, the stars aligned, it all kind of came together. Oh, this is how I could do this. You know, I could have a fanzine. I could uh, go out and try to talk to my heroes and get their stories and, and you know, put it in my own words and there's no real rules, you know? I mean, the way they wrote was with such energy and such spontaneity that, you know, it was basically like listening to the rock and roll records that they were writing about. Totally. Um, so when I started to become a quote unquote legit writer, I actually think that probably, I remember that I think two of the first things I ever reviewed were, uh, and it was for a local monthly music magazine in New Orleans, were the Rudy Ray Moore um, album that they put out, Holy Gully Fever of all his rhythm and blues sides. Mm -hmm. And um, Long John Hunter, the, oh, cool. Texas, the Texas guitar. guitar. Yeah, yeah giant who was a big influence on the bobby fuller four and those two those two records i mean i i had long been a you know i had put out my own fanzine uh you know shortly after i first discovered kicks and you know and so that would have been like you know 1989 or something like that that i put that out the creeper mm -hmm. one issue of course never <laughs> never got the second one done but you know so i'd been writing but not you know, I was just doing it for myself, you know, doing these fanzines and writing for other people's fanzines whenever I could. And then when I find, when I first got published uh, in a quote unquote legit magazine, it was offbeat. And then from there, I just started, you know, trying to figure out ways to con the editors into letting me write about older stuff because, you know, Ace Records and just sort of review stuff. And then I began to interview people uh, in New Orleans because there were so many um, unsung heroes of, of, you know, rock and roll and rhythm and blues and hillbilly music and Cajun, all of it down there. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of my heroes. Um, I started, I was buying more records and then I started, the more records you buy, the more you want to know the stories behind them. Right. So I just started talking to people and uh, wrote, a, wrote, I've done a lot of liner note projects. Mm -hmm. I did a, probably one of the most memorable um projects I ever did was uh, I did a three volume Charlie Feathers uh, series uh, for Norton, uh, which was really, really great with Billy and Miriam. That was wow. that was the, um, one of the most notable things I did with them. I've done other stuff. I did the Flamethrowers, which is a double 45 set gatefold set of uh, these this great, you know, instrumental, just killer instrumental rock and roll band from Royal Oak here. Right. Clicks Records. Clicks Records, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Clicks Records recording artists, the flamethrowers. <laughs> uh, and that was a fantastic, uh, really a highlight. Um, and also, actually, the first, it's funny, I, I didn't realize this until recently, but the first, because I'd been friends with Billy and Miriam for so long, um, and they were really the kind of people that will just pull you in as, as a you know, a fan or, or a minion or whatever it is, a follower. It's like, then all of a sudden you're, you're playing a leading role in the movie. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, at some point they just, you know, I remember it was right after the hurricane. Uh, 
in New Orleans 2005, and I was up here in Detroit. Couldn't go back um, because the city was closed. Mm-hmm. Um, my house was flooded. I mean, it was just <laughs> a real twilight period of, of strangeness. Um, and uh, Billy calls me up and says, hey, man, you want to do the liner notes for this um, this new album we're going to put out? It's uh, going to be called Get in the Groove. And it was it was a holiday, Norton Holiday Spectacular um, that they had put on. Oh, I, I remember uh, that album, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it started out as, as, as a celebration of Billy's 50th birthday, but, but it, it grew into this just incredible bill, you know, starring well, several Fortune Records artists, you know, Andrea Williams and Nathaniel Mayer. I remember Billy called me and said, well, I think you might have been the only one actually paying attention. And I, <laughs> and I think he, I think he, yeah, I, mean, I don't remember whether he said this, but I, I think I knew, he knew that I needed the money <laughs> or something because here I was like marooned in Detroit, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no job, no house, no anything, you know, possibly no possessions, which it ended up being the case. I first met you in 2002 at this show in Detroit uh, suburbs um, where they got a whole bunch of vintage acts together to play for the first time in, in decades live. And most of them, you know, came on and did like two or three songs and were kind of singing the backing tracks. Nathaniel Mayer, the legend of Fortune Records, who we heard at the beginning of the show, was live. And you were saying that you had come up to the show and pulled up and boom, you saw Nathaniel out in the parking lot and you were like interviewing him right away. And it went from there, and again, we were all knocked out by the show, and you and Billy, and Billy and Miriam had flown in from New York, and so you and Billy started talking about uh, Fortune Records at that time. You know, in a certain way, that's a touchstone, even though we hadn't, you know, we weren't planning on doing the book yet at that mm-hmm. point. It was like, that was 2002. Well, when did we really start, start it? You know, 2010 was when we really really got when the rubber really met the road i mean you know we had a year of talking about it before that billy's saying we've got to do this and 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 just sort of you know making the decision that we were going to do it which of course i said absolutely let's do it you know but we had to you know figure out the nuts and bolts of it at first we were going to ask some we wanted to ask other people to contribute because so many other people uh you know like craig mackey and keith katie and sr boland and uh you know, um, Rich Tupica, you know, all, all of whom contributed mightily to the book. Right. We were, we were kind of thinking, well, maybe, you know, we'll ask each of them to write a few chapters, but it just sort of became obvious that we, that I don't know, nobody seemed to quite take the bait. And, you know, within, you know, within about a year we were, we knew it was going to be us. Yeah. That was it. We were going to do this book. And it almost right after that, it almost immediately became apparent that it was going to be not just a book about fortune records, but it was going to be the history of underground Detroit, multiple genres, post-World War II, <laughs> maybe even a little bit of pre-war <laughs> yeah. up to it, but uh, being told through the prism of fortune records. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that helped us to make that decision sort of unwittingly was mm-hmm. in August of 2010, we interviewed Eddie Kirkland um together in new york and um his you know we dedicated two chapters in the book to the guy i mean mm-hmm. he was his story was just this epic american i mean just incredible uh i don't even know what to call it i mean not even a not even a story it's more than a story man he yeah, really it's amazing and and 
and he had all, you know, he only recorded two records for Fortune, but he had all this, he'd done records for all these other labels that we loved, like Lupine and King and, and Vault. Um, yeah, yeah. And he had all this history with John Lee Hooker. Um, so the, his story on record, we felt, hadn't been told the way it needed to be told. And then the guy's story of his life, which, of course, intertwined with it, you know. And and he had all this background about Hastings Street and, and Oakland Avenue and Detroit, you know, Black Detroit back in the day, you know, just the really, the essence of, of you know, Detroit and it's like, you know, Detroit's African-American epicenter and it's at its zenith. And, you know, it was like, we, it was almost like we never had to talk about it, but it's like, oh yeah, we got to talk about, we really got to go into detail about Hastings Street, Paradise Valley, the I-75 freeway, plowing it under, the, the sociological um, ramifications of all of that, you know? I mean, we need to talk about this in the book. This is a part of the story, you know? So it really became, we cast a really wide net, you know, almost immediately. And that really helped us to, there are so many other things you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, Billy and Miriam, of course, have always collected, you know, records from all over the place and been fascinated by all these different music scenes. And, and, and I have as well. And, and uh, it's, it's the, the, the regionalism, you know, is such a big part of these records and such a big part of this music um, with the fortune story and with the Detroit story, there's so many things connected. There's so many other labels that intersect with Fortune Records, like for instance, Clicks and Happy Hearts, you know, JVB. Um, and, and then there's, there, there's, there's, there's major labels like Four Star and RCA that are, you know, somewhat a part of the story. Epic, which Bacon Fat was leased to by Andre Williams in 56, you know, United Artists, you know, which uh, put out Village of Love, you know, um, by Nathaniel Mayer. So, there's all these other stories, some of them told, some of them untold. Well, if they were untold, we felt the responsibility to tell them, if we could, within the pages of this book. So it became, you know, really more of, of, of a, you know, who crossed the threshold of Fortune Records, as opposed to we're going to do a straight history of a label. And I think that that, you know, one of the things that I'm so proud of about this book is that I think that it's very user-friendly to use a ridiculous term um, in the sense that I think anybody could pick this book up not knowing anything about any of this music and not having heard any of it and, and be totally entertained just reading about it. Now, hopefully, if they haven't heard the music, they're going to want to go out and listen to all of it and go find it. But let's, let's, let's take a brief pause and listen to one of the tunes and we'll get back. We're, we're going to hear from Eddie Kirk himself with The Grunt. Do you want to do The Grunt Challenge? Yeah! Do you want to do the grunt challenge? Yeah! Let's get with it!
Before that was Eddie Kirk with The Grunt on Fortune Records. And we were talking about how the book was expanded to include the whole spectrum of Detroit's musical scene. And one of the aspects of the book that I think is so amazing is the uh, illustrations, the documentation of not only Fortune, but the other record labels and just venues and artists that no one's even ever heard of. Yeah, no, I, that was always something that was really important to us from the very, very beginning and uh, was to tell the story with as many images and as much ephemera as we could get our hands on. So that could that could just be a matchbook cover, a, a receipt, a record label, photos, um, a church key. In one I love that church key. I love that church key. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, just everything. So we wanted it to be a fully immersive experience and we wanted all that to be integrated with the text and our designer, Elizabeth Van Italy was just an absolute unsung hero of this project. She brought this thing together in a way that I don't think anybody else could have. Um, so I definitely want to give her a shout out. Designers never seem to get mentioned in the, uh, as much as they ought to with things like this, but, but, you know, and she was very much of the same mind as Miriam and me when we sat down with her, she, I gave her a 10 minute summation of what we wanted. And she said, well, just send me a chapter and some images and, and I'll see what I can come up with in the next five days. And then she sent us these, <laughs> basically what you see here, you know, wow. that was the template. The, the template she sent us was, was totally, totally perfect. It was the Al Allen chapter. Uh, and it was just like, just the fonts and the, and everything. It was just beautiful. So, uh, and she was very, you know, open to our suggestions and ideas and, and, and everything else as well. So, um, it was amazing to have the right person help us realize that. And, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it had to be, again, uh, that, that's something I feel that, that Billy and Miriam and I were always completely of one mind on. This is how it has to be. And, you know, um, when we were kind of figuring it out, like looking at books, looking at other books, thinking about how we wanted it to appear and stuff like that, at some point, I remember... Uh, us saying to Miriam as our publisher, we need to do this in full color. Can, can we do it in full color? And, and she was just like, yes, I'm going to make sure we do this in full color, <laughs> like, no matter what it costs. I mean, basically she said, as far as you guys want to go with this, is well, that's, that, that is how far we're going to go with it. And there's not going to be any, any limitations. And that was exactly the way it, the way it came down in the end. Um, so that is such a huge thing to have someone, to have a publisher, uh, backing you with your dream and exactly, not only just saying, I hear what you want to do, but saying, yeah, this is how I would do it too. Like, in other words, right. she believed in it the same, she had the same vision as us. Um, so that was huge again. And, uh, and, and it just, I couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. Um, it's exact you know oftentimes these things are not what you picture in your wildest dreams um and you might be a little disappointed well this was exactly what i pictured if if not better and oh, it's totally uh, awesome it's a really good feeling um to be to be able to say that i mean it's um there was so much uh again going back to all the connected stories that we wanted to talk that we wanted to tell that we were able to tell in the book mm -hmm. um that was a big part of 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 the images, you know, um, because so many of these people were not, not people who 
who most people have heard of. So many right. artists and, and even the record, the other record labels besides Fortune. You know, I remember like uh, one of the first conversations I had with you when I was coming up here visiting during oh, that. This. Yeah. yeah, was was I said, man, you know, you know anything about Happy Hearts Records? You know, this, <laughs> this little hillbilly label from Wayne, Michigan, that mm-hmm. turns out was, of course, connected with Fortune because a bunch of Fortune artists went and recorded out there as well. And they were friends with them. You know, the Jack and Devorah Brown were friends with the gentleman that owned it you know, mm-hmm. happy hearts. And I remember, um, I didn't know anything about it. It was just a fascinating label. And I lived in New Orleans at the time. So it was even more exotic because it was so, I was never going to find this stuff anywhere except when I came up here to visit you guys. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, I remember saying, do you know anything about this label? And he said, oh, well, Keith Jason on WSDS. He just told the whole story last, uh, last night, you know? And Keith is of course, actually Keith Katie, uh, who contributed a lot of photos to the book and oh, wow. amazing and very helpful. And he's a, another soldier of history, another young, just mm-hmm. a young guy who, mm-hmm. uh, who, who had a radio show, an AM radio show on this little station in the Huron Valley in Ypsilanti. Um, uh, that was, it was a country station and he played classic country, old country, and also played upright bass. And, you know, at the age of 20 or whatever, he had, you know, he was, collecting all these records and trying to get people stories. And uh, because he had that radio show, a lot of these guys that were still alive were listening to it and calling in. Wow. And so a lot of the interviews that um, no one else had thought to do. um, And we hadn't, Billy and I hadn't done because the guys were all dead. We decided to do the book. Uh, A lot of the country and hillbilly guys, I mean, it was really hard to find someone that Keith or his friend Craig Mackey had not interviewed. Um, wow. And thank and 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 they 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 had their own book, Detroit Country Music, that they put out a few years back. But exactly. a lot of the stuff um, they had gone so deep, and they didn't use a lot of it. And they just were super generous and said, "You guys can." They they let us use, you know, multiple interviews, wow. um, and you know. They also hooked me up with some people when I was, again, when I still lived back in New Orleans before, before we were even planning to do this book. But when we were exchanging information all the time, I interviewed Ford Nix and Joyce Songer and, wow. you know, a couple of other, you know, people that they hooked me up with. That's one thing about the, the book. And I want to get a little bit more into the, the label itself because, again, probably not that many of the listeners have heard a fortune record or know much about fortune story, but the label started in the just after world war two and um, Jack and Devorah Brown with this couple who had a kind of a dream of being like, she was a songwriter. So she had a dream of being a writer of kind of pop, you know, ballads and such that would be played on the radio sung by like a big band singer. Right. Right. And, right. and, and somehow they, they, he was smitten with her and he, kind of bankrolled a recording session, but the record didn't really do anything of written of songs she'd written. And then they kind of realized that they'd have to do it themselves and they started this label, but the label, their their finances were such that they couldn't record a 16-piece big band. They had to record, you know, a five-piece country band with, you know, right. a steel guitar or whatever. And yeah. So, but they started in the mid-40s. So one of the things I thought, I, I mean, 
I'll just say my, my background with Fortune Records was I would go to record shows 20, 30 years ago and there'd be these old like doo-wop collectors. Like, yeah, doo-wop, you know, good doo-wops. And I thought, yeah, Fortune Records, it's just kind of like, I'm not that into doo-wop, you know, no one's strong, they're all cool, but I'm not really going to shell out the money for a bunch of 45s of, of group harmony kind of stuff. Right. Once, once I, I'm out in the wild and I see like a 78 by Skeets McDonald, the tattooed lady or whatever, and I start picking these up and I'm realizing, you know, that the, the genres that they covered were so broad. And, they, and again, they started in the late 40s before doo-wop was even a thing. And they, they I'm, I'm just going to ask you this because they started recording all these country records. They put out a whole bunch of really amazing high quality late forties country that I almost wonder, were they the most prolific studio recording Detroit country music at that time? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, absolutely. By, by a long shot. Yeah. You know, it was almost like they had it all to themselves. I mean, you know, we deal with a couple other labels in here uh, during that era, citation being Mm -hmm. one of them, which put out less than 10 records, I think. Yeah. uh, If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, if not that, maybe 11. <laughs> yeah, it was you close know? to that. And that was like, practically, it, you know, really early on was just about as big as it got. I mean, Fortune was huge. I mean, they, you know, it was incredible. Their, their output for just that country mm-hmm. stuff alone was amazing. I mean, once they really started to do, once they, once they really, um, you know, once they really started to do it, it was, you know, put out in the 100 series and it was just incredible how many, how many records they put out in such a short period of time. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the business model because it seems like at first they were, I mean, they existed until ooh, the seventies. They put out their last record in 1972. Well, actually like, technically 86, but <laughs> well, that's true. They had those reissue albi- albums. Well, they put out their last their last record was Andre Williams' Bacon they, Fat '86. Bacon Fat '86. I have that '45 too. <laughs> but also, they 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 did they did some other weird dabbling, like the Love Dog label with Nathaniel uh, Mayer raised the curtain high. That was a Fortune subsidiary. But yeah, okay. basically, you're right. '72 was pretty much the the last. I mean, they 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 were no longer a going thing. So, but, but, but it just seems like, it, I mean, obviously they had a huge burst of activity with the country and they switched into like the R&B um, in doo-wop in the 50s until the early 60s. They, they, I mean, you've said this and you've talked about this with other, other interviewers. They never really took off into the, like the garage rock in the mid 60s or even so much soul. Like Detroit had, you know, Golden World and Rick Tick yeah. and all these soul labels, but Fortune just had a, very small scattering of stuff that fit those genres. Can you, what was, what was going on? Was it because they, it was, it, it must've been always kind of close to the bone, I guess is what I'm getting at. I think it was, but I think another thing that Billy and I, from the very first conversation, like beyond, Oh, these records are killer. Uh, you know, we had was what were they doing? Mm-hmm. What were what, like, what was their, raison d'etre if you will or, or, mm-hmm. or maybe maybe actually i think we know what that i think they just enjoyed it right. uh but but really like what was their business model did they have a business model and i think the answer is 
sort of no. I mean, okay. I think they didn't even have a plan. I mean, I think that that, in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that question is still the big lingering, one of the big lingering questions that we never really were able to answer, but it was sure was fun trying to, um, you know, trying to, trying to come to the answer uh, throughout, you know, the journey of, of, of writing and researching this book. I think one of the, but we did come up with a couple of conclusions. Um, and I think that that's the best you can do sometimes with this yeah. stuff. Um, to answer your first, or to address your first comment about mm -hmm. the, the burst of country activity followed by the doo-wop. Well, they were also putting out jazz. And okay. Also, like, you know, hard-hitting rhythm and blues stuff, you know, jump R&B, which, you know, jazz and jump R&B at that time kind of co-mingled with one another. But, you know, Donald Byrd's first appearance on Wax is on a Fortune record, mm -hmm. you know, uh, which is pretty interesting. Kenny Burrell's first records were on Fortune. Wow. Um, so they were doing that in the late 40s uh, along with the country and along with some um, early vocal group dabbling you know sort of pre doo op stuff um as well as polka too um they did they did some of that and gospel mm -hmm. but they really i think that the doo op uh really became a concentrated effort mm -hmm. once nolan strong came along and devora just fell in love with nolan strong and the diablos his group and they put out you know adios my desert love and Followed up by the wind, both in 1954, and the wind was just huge. Adios was big. The wind was massive. Right. Uh, and it, obviously, there's never been a record before or since that sounded like that. And so I think that that really pushed them in the direction of the groups, the doo-wop groups. And then that did, as you said, become what Fortune later became known for in collector circles because their doo-wop stuff was just so fascinating and so different than so much other vocal group material and record so many records from that time you guys covered everything so thoroughly in this book i mean there's just things that i you know am amazed that you could find information on but but even the, even then there's a few that i have that i'm like oh you guys didn't even mention it or you know you, you referred to it in passing right so, some so. of the things you know that almost became our 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 rule of thumb was every record has to be mentioned, at least right. mentioned. Now, hopefully we can do more than just mention it and do a brief description. But, you know, uh, and I think I think there might have been a couple that we missed. I, I hope not. But but um, but we, well, we got most of them. But well, I'm going to uh, throw I'm going to throw in one of the more notorious ones just for a quick uh, a giggle here. But uh, one of the artists they started out in the 50s with was um, Johnny Bucket, right? And they had him doing some of those risque numbers. Riddle Grease and Daddy, which Riddle Grease and Daddy, which he reported, which he recorded twice, uh, once in 1952 on their subsidiary Renown, right? Um, and then he re-recorded it in the late 50s for that EP, um, a four-song party EP they did, and also the Tattooed Lady album. Uh, it was on there. And I mean, my God, it's like this total, it's like one of the best rockabilly records ever. I mean, it's just so, it just sounds like it's just, I don't even know, basement, just, God, they're just down there just wailing. 
It's let's, such a fantastic record, man. Yeah, let's take a listen to Johnny Bucket and Griddle Grease and Daddy. Mind Over Matters, the book out from Kicks Books. Downstairs in the hall, down in the cellar, that's the best place of all, cause I'm a griddle greasing daddy. I want a greasy griddle until I break up dawn. That was Johnny Bucket with Girdle Grease and Daddy. I love that uh, risque style of some of the Fortune records that came out in the, especially in the kind of hillbilly style. There were a number of what I guess are called party records. What can you tell us about those? Well, yeah, that's a really that was a really interesting aspect of the story that that we were always completely fascinated with. And once again, we don't know, you know, we 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 didn't succeed in in in. Uh, unveiling all of the mystery there's still a little bit of 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 mystery left hence the subtitle of our book the myths Mm -hmm. and mysteries of detroit's fortune records correct but we definitely uh delved into it as far as as far as we could as far as we we could uncover and you know there's it isn't so much just that fortune i mean fortune definitely defined in so many ways the uh sound and the spirit of those kinds of records um in detroit and it seems like it was always a thing in detroit these these risque songs you know and i think but but one thing we did we did basically uh we were able to sort of i I, you know i guess i'll say prove if you will is that is that if if you took fortune away from the or the equation uh things would be things would be very different i mean they they encourage their artists. They seem like they absolutely love the idea of these party records. And they encourage and cajole these artists into doing these things. Um, you know, that might have just been like a part of the artist's set. But Jack and Devorah Brown would focus, would say, let's, you know, Johnny Bucket, who also recorded gospel music, by the way, but right. Like let's let's do some of these party records. You're so good at them, you know. What I, mean? I mean, you know, I'm guessing that that's probably what went down. Um, and but where it where it starts, and uh, and you know, as far as we could trace it, was with a guy named Edward Keeley, who produced records for three labels, starting with Universal in 1939 uh, with the York Brothers, Hamtramck, Mama, um, and he had a record store on the east side of Detroit and called Mellow Music. And he uh, had a couple other labels that he dabbled in. Hot Wax was one of them. Mellow was another. And, they, and he was really into this, 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 uh, this risque stuff, you know, during World War II, which, I mean, really, 
nobody was really supposed to be pressing records during World War II. Well, this guy was doing it, you know. Okay. <laughs> Leave it to Detroit, you know. <laughs> um, but because there was a shellac ban for, for the war effort. I don't quite know how this guy got away with it. But, wow. you know, he was a fascinating character that our friend Craig Mackey delved into in his book, uh, his Detroit country music book. Um, and we were able to fortunately glean some of that information from Craig and, and then do our own research. And it really seems like a, pa uh, you know, a torch was passed at the very least to the Browns from Edward Keeley. They must've known the guy because Hamtramck mama and Highland park girl by the York brothers, uh, which had originally been released you know, on Universal in 1939 mm -hmm. was reissued by Fortune. They, almost like they bought his masters. So Fortune takes over the kind of uh, risque market a little bit in Detroit. And their first big hit was uh, with a guy named Roy Hall who came up from the South. Tell us about Roy Hall. You know, Roy Hall is, is just got this thunderous boogie piano style and he's a totally lurid, <laughs> you know, guy, I mean, along with a lot of those in that, that, you know, sort of piano red, uh, barrel house style, you know, these guys are singing, you know, I mean, after hours, whorehouse songs, you know, that was their deal, you know, almost like something you'd heard, you know, in Storyville in New Orleans and, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Jelly Roll Morton. I mean, that's where it all goes back to. Right. So, sure. um, so Roy Hall is, is, you know, brings his brings his band to fortune and and of course you know devore loved him and they they cut dirty boogie that thing became just you know they put it out and it went like wildfire on the jukeboxes uh and just you know just a fantastic risque party number that couldn't be played on the radio but certainly could be played in uh every barroom in the city you know um that had a jukebox so um that 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 started it and i think that and, and you know fortune started on um on linwood mm -hmm. uh, before they were on third they didn't move to third avenue until 1956. Okay. Uh, so when they were on linwood they had the same sort of setup record store in the front studio in the back and you know jack i mean we found newspaper clippings i mean they're in the book you know jack got in trouble for uh you know selling party records i mean oh, it was like a, yeah it was a, the vice squad I mean, they, they were illegal in, in certain ways uh and which to think about that now it sounds ridiculous yeah. but you look at the newspaper clipping and it's like man you know uh he's getting nailed for for selling you know adult themed records um and, and what's funny about it is the fact that they got in trouble for it didn't stop them from uh, from not only selling the records by other people, but making the records on their own. And that's that, again, is sort of how Detroit became, you know, I mean, everyone was doing these kind of records to a certain extent back then, but nobody was doing them like they were in Detroit. Yeah, there's so many aspects of the story that are just kind of amazing and which the standard histories of Detroit music don't cover. Um, one thing I really want to get into, and we don't have time to talk about it tonight, is the gospel recordings of Fortune, of which there were many, and um, many different groups in black styles and white hillbilly kind of styles. But um, here's a record that I always have enjoyed. 
by the Reverend George Morton with the Jones sisters, who later, I guess, became disco hit makers. This is called This Is My Story. George Morton with the Jones Sisters, and this is my story on Haikyuu, one of the imprints that uh, Fortune Lit Records uh, used uh, over the years. Anyhow, we're talking to Michael Hurd here on Living Writers, and uh, we want to mention that the book is available from kicksbooks.com, and you guys had it printed out in Dexter, I know. Norton is based in New York, and Norton and Kicks Books, and Miriam Lena, but um, you gave wanted to give the work to Michigan workers, which is a wonderful thing here in the pandemic. And I know you guys spent um, hundreds and hundreds of hours, thousands and thousands of hours on this project. And, you know, it probably isn't uh, something that's going to make a big payday in the end. But um, I know you just did it because you love the music. Right. I mean, you know, the idea is, obviously, with anything, you do it for the love first and the money second. And if the money shows up, great. And we certainly hope it will. But, you know, uh, in this case, if anything, if anything deserves it. <laughs> considering all the blood, sweat, and tears and everything in the journey uh, that we put into it and the, the immeasurable amount of time, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got to do it for the love of it first. And I think that's really the key. Absolutely. And it, and it really shows in the work that you and Billy did and the coverage of the different styles of music from the gospel that we just heard to uh, rockabilly, which we barely touched on, to doo-wop, to... Um, Hungarian recordings, dabbling in instrumentals and garage rock a little tiny bit, and even soul music um, and funk later on. Fortune just covered so many styles, and the way you guys patched it together, the love that you put into it is so evident, and it just leaps off the page. And obviously we can't show here on the radio our listeners what this thing looks like, but you call it the brick, and it is like a brick. It's like a heavy... I mean, I hate to say, call it a coffee table book because it's not just illustrations. It's a marriage of illustrations and text. And one thing that we really have to mention is that this music hasn't been legitimately reissued. There's no legal CDs uh, or easy-to-get CDs of even bootleg quality of this music for the most part. And it's the, the, the label owners are eccentric, and there's a lot of story back behind that. But um, the only way to really hear this music is by YouTube. I'm really thankful that this book was able to come out during the age of YouTube. You know, even if the fortune catalog was completely available to everybody right. everywhere, uh, at the, you know, by just walking into a record store or whatever. The fact is, is that there's so much other stuff we're covering in here that's related to it. Right. And intertwined and so many other records um, that, you know, it would, it would have actually served, 
served a disservice for us to have included a, you know, some people do the thing where they include the CD, you know, it's like, well, how would you even narrow it down, you know, but, right. but we're also, you know, we're talking about, like I say, so many other labels as well, and how, it, how they all intertwine with the story and the fact that people can go, can read, and a lot of people are doing it this way, because they say, well, I'm reading the book, I'll get to, I'll get to a point, and I'll go listen to, you know, Rufus Schaffner, you know, uh, on YouTube, and, and I'll listen to his stuff on, you know, not only on Fortune, but then I'll listen to the, the stuff he did on his own label, American Artists, and then I can go listen to the Sunny Siders, who he played bass for, whatever. It's like you get, you can actually go ahead and listen. You know, you can hear the, you know, first Jimmy Martin RCA single that Rufus wrote, you know, save it just, you know, by going to YouTube. It's on a major label. So normally it would be something that you could never get your hands on. Um, that's, that's a good, that's a really interesting point because. Um, I mean, this, you know, could serve almost like as a, a insane, like box set liner notes package where you just, yeah. if you had all, I mean, there's about 400 releases that Fortune put out. If you had all 400 releases on a massive CD box set and this book, that would be one thing. But as you just said, since it's not available, it's not in print, you can go to YouTube. And so in the, in the, in the context, I mean, again, the label shots, I'm just flipping through it here. There's like, a single on Knowles, I mean, the gospel label. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, Brother Will Harrison, the Hurricane of the Motor City, put out those amazing, you know, March on to Montgomery records and stuff. Right. Which, you know, you can now. Alabama Bus, music. yeah. Alabama yeah. Bus. And we, and we had, had to come. Yeah, he was a guy that, again, he was a peripheral part of the story. He didn't record at Fortune. Yep. But, you know, it's like we had to mention that guy. We had to talk about yeah. those records. Those records are legendary. It's like civil rights call to arms, like I right. said before. Uh, it's the first mention of Martin Luther King, you know, on wax, mm -hmm. you know, in the fifties. I mean, this guy, and, and, and again, it happened in Detroit. That's, that's the hashtag, I guess. If right. you will. I mean, there's just so much that happened here and started here and so much history that has not been covered while well, we tried to cover as much of it as we could. Uh, there's, there's always more. And the, I mean, just some of the sidelights about, what is it, the Greystone Ballroom where a dude like brings a, a, a tiger on stage and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was what the, the village. Hell? Well, it was the village. The village, the village. And yeah, yeah. it was a lion, but you're close. Yeah. Okay, well. Well, you know what's funny about that story is as far as like, as far as it goes when you're dealing with these larger than life characters and you're dealing with stuff that happened a long time ago and you're trying to picture these worlds. Right. You know, I remember like talking to Nathaniel Mayer uh, at his house here in Detroit with my friend S.R. Boland. Um, and he said, you know, we were interviewing him and, it, and it's actually in the book. Uh, it was ended up being used. Uh, they had a real live lion caged, you know, that they brought out, and he's talking about they're bringing this lion out on stage. And we later on, we were like, God, I mean, that almost sounds like crazy enough to be true. Like where would they <laughs> just make that up? But I mean, he's such a wild guy that like, yeah. You know, it's almost like you don't you don't think that you don't believe them, but you're not so sure. And, and and this is so funny. I went through this with Billy so many times. Like we thought, well, that's gotta be an exaggeration. You know, not necessarily that story, but but other ones. And then every single time, somehow <laughs> it would come out of the woodwork from a totally different direction that it was true. Now, in the case of the lion, the reason that uh the flamethrowers, which I mentioned earlier, a project, oh, yeah, yeah. double 45 project I did for Norton. 
That whole thing came to fruition through my friend George Katsakis, the saxophone player from the Royal Tones who played in my band, the Party Stompers, with me, mm-hmm. and said, just happened to mention that his best friend had used to have a band called the Flamethrowers. And I'm like, wait a minute, you know, um, yeah. give me his phone number, whatever. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bruce Stratton, who who George, you know, and, and whose who's, who's claim to fame was that he was he was like one of the guys who really broke. He broke Mickey Gilly in a huge way, and he broke a lot of other really, really successful country artists out of huge, out of a uh, out of Texas in the '80s. Um, so he had a lot to do with like you know new country or whatever, if you will. He was a disc jockey, but anyway, <laughs> I called the guy up trying to get the flamethrower story. Well, he starts telling me the story, and he starts talking about how he had managed the village when wow. it first opened. The for he was the first manager of the village. And he said, we had this real live African lion. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. Nate was totally, you know, like, Nate didn't know the whole story. Yeah. But this guy filled in the gaps. Bruce said, uh, Dr. Bruce said that, well, yeah, the, the, the Glantz brothers, who later opened the Grandy, you know, took the Grandy Ballroom over and, you know, uh, you know, sort of started the, basically started along with Russ Gibb, the, oh. you know, all that, uh, that whole scene. Um, these guys, and they were involved in Walt Lake Casino and all these other, you know, places, you know, clubs around around town. Then, uh, you know, they named the place after the song "The Lion Sleeps Tonight." Oh. In the village, the lion sleeps tonight. So, because it was it was a huge hit at the time, and so they got this African lion. That was a part of the deal. And, and Doctor Bruce said, "Yeah, the lion lived in our house. We, he lived in our basement." You know, uh, the story oh, yeah. in the book, but it's just—I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's just like it's so funny, and you can't believe that this stuff even happened. Yeah, that's one of so many stories in the book that is just mind blowing. And it, one of the things that. You know, this book really does is it corrects some some of the lost history that that people have only focused on Motown and the big names, but this stuff's just as important. We would just like some equal time. We want these yeah. stories to be equally uh, told alongside the stories of techno music, the stories of Motown music, the stories, right. you know, the stories that get told over and over about the MC5 and the Stooges. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. love those guys, man. You know, it's nothing against them. It's just that Andre Williams and Nathaniel Mayer. And, you know, Rufus Schaffner and Curly Dan and Wilma Ann, they deserve to be talked about, too, because they are such a part of an intrinsic and inextricable part of the heart and soul of just the true essence of Detroit. Um, And for a lot of people around the world, that is what they think of. This milieu that we cover in this book, this sort of mixed milieu Mm -hmm. uh, that we try to bring um, to the surface is what a lot of people around the world think of when they identify with Detroit. That is Detroit to them, you know. Right. Uh, right. Gina Washington, Nathaniel, I mean, that mm-hmm. is the sound of Detroit, you know. And then you you, you walk around here and half the people, you know, most people don't have no idea who they are. When we were really hoping to, to, you know, bring these bring these people and their music and their stories mm-hmm. into the into the constant conversation yes. um, of the city and, and uh, you know, that's one of the reasons, I mean, obviously we tried to write, we, we, we wrote the book with the energy. We tried to write it with the energy that you, of the records. And we, you know, so much of the time with these kind of history books, mm-hmm. um, they can be so academic that it's almost like there's just dust settling on the stories. 
you know, on the shelf and on the page, you know, yeah. it's almost like they're, they're actually putting the stories on a shelf. Well, our goal was to like bring the stories to life. I mean, we're talking about mm -hmm. these are people's lives. And, and mm -hmm. if you look at someone like Nathaniel or someone like Eddie Kirkland, um, you know, it's like their whole life informs everything yeah. they did in that studio. Yeah. And, uh, and other things they did inform the records. And so we try to talk about all of it as much as we can, but I mean, it's just like, yeah, these are people's lives we're dealing with. And to us, and I'm sure you can relate to this, these people are still with us. They're still alive. You know, we put their records on and that's, that's communing with their soul at that moment mm -hmm. that record was recorded. Uh, my friend, Tim Caldwell, always who contributed a lot to the book, always talks about this. He says, you know, that's, you put that needle in that groove and you're commuting with someone's soul. You're, mm -hmm. you're actually going back in time. And so that's a big part of uh, us trying to bring these stories to life is that these people to us are so eternal and their stories are so eternal that we want them to live, you know? And that was a big reason to do the book. Well, you did an amazing, you and Billy did an amazing job and it's, you know, again, we talked, started off talking a little bit about Billy. I mean, it must have just been heartbreaking to him not to be, have been able to see this through to the end because this was such a part of his life. Oh, my God. Absolutely. It really was and, and still is. And I mean, you know, mm -hmm. uh, he worked until literally I was I was with him, you know, a week before he passed away uh, mm -hmm. for a long, you know, jag of, of uh, immersion, you know, working on the book. And I mean, he was really like working on it up until the very absolute end. I mean, and, and, uh, and, you know, he was really struggling and having a rough time, uh, with, with multiple, you know, multiple issues, you know, um, but, uh, you know, his mind was just like throughout the whole thing, he was so focused and so clear on how we had to do this, uh, you know, what needed to be said where, what needed to go. I mean, you know, it was really fantastic. He was such an amazing person to work with. And yeah, the fact that he's not here to see the finished product is mm -hmm. truly heartbreaking. I mean, I, I did have to work for, you know, four more years on it after, after he was gone. And, mm -hmm. you know, some people say, well, how did you do that? You know, and, and if there was still so much to do, well, there, it wasn't, it wasn't that, that there, there was a lot to do, but, we had talked about it all so much that anything that hadn't been written down already, I knew exactly what to write and how he would want it written. And I'm sure he would have been able to do the same thing for me, you mm -hmm. know, if the shoe had been on the other foot, because we had just talked about every element of the book so much that it was living in our minds, you know, wow. forefront. And, uh, you know, it took a while to figure out certain things and how certain things should go, but it all did come together. And, and I do feel that, uh, when he wasn't here, in a sense, I did feel like he was with me, mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, a cliche of a thing to say in a sense, but it, but it's true. Mm -hmm. I mean, he really was, mm -hmm. his spirit is there on every page of that book. And, and this was such an, I mean, the, the guy did so much in his life, so many incredible projects with, you know, Kicks Magazine, Norton Records, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they bones yeah bands the zanties and the a bones you know all oh, just just all kinds of stuff but um i know that this book was truly his like i mean the fact that this was his last word of the world yeah i think he would have wanted it that way because it was truly one of his dreams to you know 
get the story of Fortune Records out there into the world. I mean, he just was so fascinated and obsessed with this label. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just the story of Detroit, you know, he truly loved the, you know, every shred of information that I came up with that was connected with it, you know, that I, that, that I wouldn't have been able to come with if I hadn't, you know, been blown up here by the hurricane. <laughs> you know, living here really helped. I don't think, I mean, I'm sure we could have done the book if right. either of us had lived here, but I, I, I don't know. I feel like being a Detroiter, becoming a Detroiter mm -hmm. really helped the, you know, with so much background, just understanding the strange city. Well, it certainly sounds like you and Billy did every bit of research you could possibly do to put this wonderful book together. Um, we're out of time, and so I've got to thank my guest, Michael Hurt, for being here with us this afternoon on Living Writers, pre-taped. And thanks also to T. Hetzel for letting us fill in this week. You are tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and we're going to go out with a classic from Fortune Records by Nolan Strong and also the title of the book, Mind Over Matter.
WCPNFM and Arbor Archives. Original air date July 6, 2017 at 12 p.m. noon. Thank <laughs> you.